0: Well, the engineers at General Electric were baffled. A complex machine had broken down its early 20th century, middle of the industrial age. And this sort of thing just shouldn't be happening to a powerhouse like GE. Uncertain of where to begin, the operators of this machinery called in none other than Charles Steinmetz. Now, Charles Steinmetz was known as an electrical genius. Companies all over the world would have Mr. Steinmetz come in, build machinery, evaluate machinery, fix machinery. He was the guru of the day. So as Charles Steinmetz walked into this facility, he walked around the interconnected machines performing various tests. And then all of a sudden, he stopped at one particular machine, and he took out a piece of chalk from his pocket, and he came to this one particular component of this one particular machine and drew an X on it and walked out. The engineers walked in and thought that was a little odd. They disassembled this one particular component, and sure enough, that was the exact piece of equipment that needed to be replaced. That was the exact problem. Steinmetz had nailed it, nailed it, problem solved. Now, problem was, a couple weeks later, Steinmetz sent Henry Ford of GE a bill for $10,000. Henry Ford wasn't so fired up about that, he thought, this, is, this guy's lost his mind. So he sent the bill back to Steinmetz and said, can you itemize it for me? A <laughs> Couple weeks passed by and Steinmetz sent back an itemized bill. Henry Ford opened it, and here's what it said. One chalk mark, one dollar. Knowing where to put it, (laughs) $9,999. Now, why share that story? Because if I had to put an X somewhere in the book of Isaiah that summarized the main message of the entire book, all 66 chapters, I would draw an X on Isaiah chapter 34 and 35 because, as one commentator calls it, it chapters 34 and 35, he says, are the hinges and rudder of the book of Isaiah. Like that's right, this, these chapters summarize what has happened in chapters one through 33 and foretell what will happen in chapters 36 and onward. How do they do this? Well, by giving us, Isaiah gives us two truths that encapsulate Isaiah's central message of the entire book here in chapter 34 and 35. Two truths that when you believe them, when you believe them, they will inevitably change how you live, think, and act forever. So what are these two truths that Isaiah teaches us in these two chapters? Here they are. Truth number one. God's creation will be judged. Truth number two, God's people will be freed. First, God's creation will be judged. Begin with me by looking at Isaiah chapter 34, beginning at verse one. Here's what it says. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth here, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. Context here is after nations, kings, and people continue to rebel against God by placing their trust in wicked nation after wicked nation to provide and protect them, God has had enough. So he calls together a family meeting, and he sends a meeting invite to all of creation, in particular, look who he calls together. The nations, peoples, the earth, and the world. Everything he has created, he, he calls together. And what does he say? Well, look at verse two. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter, their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. Verse four, all the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. The first 33 chapters of Isaiah show that God's creation Nations and people like again and again choose to trust in everything but God. And as a result, God is, verse 2, enraged and furious. So, what does he do? He declares judgment on the nations, the people, and the world itself. And Isaiah tells us that his judgment will result in two primary results death. And destruction how bad will this death and destruction be well to the point that Isaiah says look at verse 3 that so many people are going to die that the stench of corpses shall rise and the mountains shall flow with their blood and in the midst of this mass genocide the world itself will start to crumble verse 4 He says, all the hosts of heaven shall rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts, or in some of your translations, stars, shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. This is unlike anything any human in all of history has ever seen. God will judge all of creation, the nations, the people, and the world itself. Why? because all of creation is marred and corrupted by sin. All of it. But Isaiah doesn't stop here. He he wants his original readers and audience to know that God's judgment will be carried out against one particular group of people. Verse five. It says, For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. In other words, God is now this Warrior who has taken out his sword and is ready to attack. He continues on in verse five. He says, behold, it descends for judgment upon, who who is it? Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Now, the question you should be asking as a Bible reader is why Edom? Why then? Did, Did they draw the short end of the stick? Well, why not another nation like Egypt or Assyria? You got plenty of wicked nations to choose from. Why Edom? I think one commentator gets it right when he writes, quote, no nation is so consistently hostile to God's people throughout the Old Testament as Edom. All over the place. So what God is essentially then saying through Isaiah is this. What I'm going to do to Edom is exactly what I will do with every nation in person who rebels against me and persecutes my people. This is a watch and see. God is saying, to, don't worry, I haven't forgotten about you. But what's gonna happen to them will happen to you if you don't repent. This is why Isaiah says, look down at verse eight. A little later, in verse eight he says, for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Everything that has plagued God's people And they were asking, when is God going to judge these people? When is God going to judge these people? When is God going to judge these people? And God says, now. So what will he do? What will this judgment look like? Look at verse 9. The streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. So saying God will burn the nation down to a pile of ash with a fire that will never run out. He will take down every person of power. Look at verse 12. He will take down its nobles, until there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. And everything the people once trusted in, their military might, their strong armies, their strong fortresses will become desolate to the point that the only thing that will be left is wild animals. Look at verse 13. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. You might be, that's weird. Why picking on ostriches? Kids, throw away your ostrich stuffed animals. It's a mark of judgment. (laughs) Don't have to do that, but why does your kid have a stuffed ostrich? I have questions. (laughs) Ostriches are often used in jackals throughout the Old Testament as a sign of judgment. This is why they're referred to here. Here's the point. You can go on and on. Here's the point. God's creation will be judged. Not just parts of it, all of it. All of it. And nothing, no amount of coercion, persuasion, argumentation, righteousness, will change God's mind. Nothing. Such as Isaiah says at the beginning of verse 17. Look, look with me, verse 17. Here's what he says. He says, he has cast a lot for them. It's God, God has decided The gavel's down. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. There's no getting out of it. From generation to generation they shall dwell in it. You say, what does this mean for me? Well, God's judgment on the nation of Edom was great, wasn't it? Mountains rolling with blood, the stars falling from the sky but it's only a foretaste of the final judgment to come. Which is why, in the book of Revelation, when the apostle John is given a glimpse of the final judgment, final eschaton, he uses Isaiah 34 to describe what he sees. Revelation six, beginning in verse 12. I'll read it, we will be on the screen. Open your Bible, look to it too. This is an incredible passage, so much here. Revelation six, verse 12. John, future judgment, sees it, uses Isaiah 34. Here's what he writes, verse 12. "I, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and then, listen, Heard this before, verse 13, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Isaiah 34 is meant to remind us that God is so holy. So holy. And we are so sinful that every single one of us rightfully deserves the wrath of God forever. You know, it is only by the mercy of God that he doesn't strike us down right now because of our sin. And yet... If we're honest, many of us walk around in life thinking God owes us something. God, I did this for you. Look at these good deeds I'm doing. You owe me a little something. God, I don't owe you a thing. In fact, the only thing God owes us is in the words of Jonathan Edwards, you have reason to wonder why you are not in hell already. God uses Isaiah to tell every person in his day and in ours this truth. God's creation will be judged. And we deserve it. The entire book of Isaiah could be summarized in two truths. First, God's creation will be judged, and then secondly, God's people will be freed. Isaiah transitions from talking about the coming wrath of God in chapter 34 to now in chapter 35 talking about the coming glory of God in chapter 35. From explaining the coming judgment for the wicked to explaining the coming mercy for the redeemed. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 35. It's what he says. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. What does this mean? It means Isaiah is reminding God's people that even though currently they're experiencing great suffering, being oppressed by the wicked, struggling to even make it another day, God steps in through Isaiah and says, there is coming a day where I'm gonna redeem all of it, to the point that even the desert land, notice in verse 1, will blossom and look like the beautiful, fruitful lands of Lebanon and Carmel. And just in case you're wondering, not Carmel, Indiana, bad <laughs> hermeneutic. Now, I will say, if heaven has a greater ice cream on every corner, I'm not going to be upset about that, <laughs> no, in other words, Isaiah is saying there will be a day soon where God's people will end of verse two. Look with me. This is what every, all of history is heading to this point. Verse two, where the redeemed will see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Amen. So in light of this, he tells them verse three. He says, come on, you're, you're suffering, you need to hear this, verse three. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And what will this salvation look like? Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals, where they lie down the grass, shall become reeds and rushes. Isaiah is saying that there will be a day where God's people will live in a place characterized by great reversals. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the paralyzed will jump, the mute will sing, the wilderness will become an oasis, the desert sand will become water, and what was once decaying will become fruitful. Commentator Alan Harmon explains when he writes the following, quote, the world will become a new Eden. With all physical infirmities such as blindness, deafness, crippling disease, and suffering, Gone. The wilderness areas will suddenly have abundant water supplies and the dry dens of animals will be changed into flourishing vegetation and this will be their home. So here's the question, how will God's people get to that place? That sounds awesome. How do we get there? Verse eight, and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. They shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed, they shall walk there. In other words, God is promising that he will create a way. He will, a way that is pure, holy, and safe for the people of God to get to this new Eden. He's gonna make it happen. It's gonna be a place where, look at verse 10. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Fast forward centuries later. We find that God's way isn't a road or a trail, it's a person. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse six, Jesus refers to himself as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, Nobody comes through the Father except through me. The early Christians in the book of Acts referred, are referred to multiple times as followers of the way. This means that Isaiah was pointing his original readers to a day where Jesus Christ would come in the flesh, live perfectly, die horrifically, and rise triumphantly on their behalf. Why? So that, as Isaiah says in verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. The point is simple. There is coming a day where not only will God's creation be judged, but all of God's people will be freed forever from sin, from suffering, from death with no expiration date. This is the message of the book of Isaiah. The whole book, that's the message. Now here's our question. What should we learn then? What do we do with that? Two things primarily. Number one, here's what we should learn Every person is heading towards either unending judgment or everlasting freedom. Every person, no exceptions, no third way. Isaiah's message should cause each of us to ask ourselves right now, where am I heading? Commentator Ray Orland expounds on this when he writes, You need to understand that hell or heaven will be, in one sense, the eternal extension of the deepest, truest you that you become in this life. That is really insightful. He goes on, so here is the most important question of your existence. What are you becoming? Whatever you are becoming reveals where you are going. He says if you are savoring by faith the salvation and fullness from God, you are already on your way to what Isaiah calls Zion in chapter 35. But if you choose not to live by faith in this world, Isaiah 34 is showing you your future. Or to put it another way, your life right now, whether you know it or not, is heading towards either eternal wrath eternal bliss. So if you're here today and you're not following Jesus, one application from this sermon for you, come to Jesus. Bring all of your sin, all of your questions, all of your doubts, and stake your life on the promise that he is the way to all that your heart's ever desired. No way around it. Or, I love Luther. In the words of Martin Luther, I commend you to him who loves you more than you love you. So come to Jesus, today, right now, in your seat, this moment, and experience joy in this life and freedom in the next. Isaiah's message teaches us that first every person is heading towards either unending judgment or everlasting freedom, so come to Jesus. And here's the second lesson, that also teaches us this, that future deliverance fuels present joy. Future deliverance fuels present joy. See, his message of future deliverance was meant to help God's people in his day have hope even in the midst of persecution, physical suffering, and loss. Why? Because when you live in a fallen world where all you can see all around you is disease, dysfunction, and death, your only hope has to be in what you can't see. Has to be. It's why the Apostle Paul encouraged the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4 to fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And friends, which one of us doesn't need this reminder today? Rather, it's the loss of a loved one, struggling with an illness that might never leave, losing your job, feeling like your marriage is just falling apart by the minute, dealing with difficult kids, being bullied at school, or feeling trapped by an addiction. Whatever it might be, each of us has been tempted this week to despair of life itself because of what we see, haven't we? All of us. But I wanna remind you this morning that if you're in Christ, your joy can't be touched by anything going on in your life right now. can't be touched. Why? Because your joy is not anchored in this world, but in the world to come. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day where, as Revelation 21 puts it, he will wipe away every tear from your eye and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Which means no matter what you are facing today, no matter how great your suffering, you can have joy because Jesus has promised you that this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Thinking about the life to come produces joy in the life today. Listen, this is part of the reason we come together as a church every Sunday and why you need to be here. Because we don't come to church for good coffee, good donuts, even though some Sundays I come for the donuts and I work here. Confession. Whoever's in charge of the donuts, bring those back. I'll be the donut pastor. I'm happy to accept that title. I'm well-qualified. That's not why we come to church. We don't, we don't come to hear our favorite song. Who's singing today? does it really matter. We don't come to hear a mediocre preacher. Don't do that. No, no, no. We, we come to remind each other face-to-face every single day that there is more to life than what we see. There's more than this. It is why Bonhoeffer said... I love this line. He said, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said, the Christ on my brother's lips is bigger than the Christ in my heart. We need to hear that. I need you to tell me, Brad, your life might have totally sucked this week. This this ain't all there is. There's more coming, there's more coming. Future deliverance is coming. Guys, we are one day closer to heaven. Do you know that? Today, we're one day closer. And we, we gather together every Sunday to remind each other of that. You're one day closer. You're one day closer. You're one day closer. You know, perhaps no one I know understands this experientially as well as Joni erickson Tata. Oh Joni was 17 years old when through a diving accident she crushed her spinal column leaving her paralyzed from the shoulders down. She went on to become a Christian and now ministers to thousands of people, literally all over the world through her ministry, and Friends and countless books she's written. In one of her books, she explains that thinking often about heaven has helped her have immense joy even in the midst of her physical suffering. Listen to her reflect on what she imagines her future deliverance to be like. This is beautiful. She writes... I sure hope I can bring my wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands, and I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say to him, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there? You were right when you said that in this trouble, we would have trouble. Because that thing was a whole heck of a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I do not think I would have ever known the glory of your grace were it not for the weakness of that wheelchair. And then I love this line. She says, now, if you like, you can send that thing off to hell. (laughs) Love that. Keeps getting better, okay? This is the best part of the sermon. I'm jazzed about this. The rest of them, yeah, this is good, this is good. She says, after that, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy and his heart for us beyond all that we have ever experienced on earth. And when we're finally able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. All of them. Then listen to these words. I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will. That's where you're heading if you're in Jesus. And we are one day closer to Zion, where we are gonna live forever in perfection with Jesus, forever, doing what we've done this morning. Friends, this is the message of Isaiah. God's creation will be judged. But we have hope because God's people will one day be freed. Let's pray. Father, we... We need this word this morning. I need this word this morning. I need to be reminded, in spite of all my messes this week, all my sins, all my struggles, because of you, Lord Jesus, because of the redemption that you have secured for us, because of the life you lived, the death you died, and your resurrection and ascension, Myself and all of us can have hope because we are one day closer to experiencing Isaiah 35. So would you help us to have hope this week and even now as we sing this song and we reflect on what's going on in heaven even right now and what we will one day be a part of for all eternity. Would you help us to sing like we mean it? Help us to worship you with joy. In Jesus' name. Amen.